Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes 4, uh, we began there this last, uh, last Sunday as we've been looking for some time now at King Solomon, uh, looking at and studying uh, the wisdom that he gives to us uh, in this um, uh, so, uh, book that is so practical. Uh, his thoughts and conclusions about life as he stands really at the end of his, his life, looking back over things that he's observed and things that he has personally himself uh, experienced. So uh, we want to just sort of pick back up here uh, in Ecclesiastes 4. We'll finish this out today. Re- really a chapter, as we noted last week, that speaks about this uh, issue of loneliness. Uh, as you go through, we, we mentioned that it's not uh, as obvious in maybe some of our English translations, but as we go through this particular chapter, uh, the Roman numeral 1 uh, is used seven times in the chapter the term for the numeral two is used eight times, and it's really uh, various contrasts through this chapter of the difference, uh, those who are by themselves, those who stand alone as one versus those who have others in their life to do and serve various functions, uh, and, and, and we'll look at some of these examples as we finish up uh, today. So let's just uh, begin by reading the the chapter uh, together, you can follow along in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, verse 1. Solomon writes, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction, for he has come out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun thronged to the side of the second lad, who replaces him, there is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after wind. So Solomon emphasizes in various ways in this particular chapter the advantages of having someone to comfort us, to, to work with us, to counsel us, and the disadvantages of being alone and isolated without support and without help. 
there, there are certainly some advantages to, uh, we might say, an, an independent or a solitary life, uh, but there are far more disadvantages as we discover them painfully as we, as we get older. So we could go back sort of beginning to the beginning of chapter 3. It's as if Solomon looks up and sees the God of heaven who is in control of, of all, all of our lives, all the details of our lives. Uh, we see his providence. Uh, then Solomon, we might say at the, towards the end of chapter 3, looks ahead, sees the last enemy, death, that great equalizer. We, we spent some time talking about that in chapter 3. And here in chapter 4, it's as if he looks around and he understands that a, life is complex, uh, it's difficult, uh, and for most people, they are, they are very lonely. And he explores this issue of loneliness, which is, as we said, another reality of life outside of the Garden of Eden and this side of heaven, something that we uh, might say is a common-to-man uh, experience. Uh, we certainly witness this in our own culture uh, here in the States. In fact, uh, Americans in general, I think, tend to be more independent, um, less, we might say, group-oriented than people in, in many other uh, countries. Uh, back in uh, 1973, uh, Ralph Keyes wrote a book called We the Lonely People, uh, and in that he said that above all else, we Americans value, and he named three things, mobility, convenience, and privacy. And then in his book, he sort of even from that, narrowed that down and said this, quote, that of these three things, privacy is our most cherished value. <laughs> so that was his conclusion. Solomon may, may concur with that, agree with that. Uh, certainly, an, uh, there seems to be an overemphasis maybe in our culture on, on this issue of privacy, uh, which has led us to, say, value technology more than we value relationships. Um, possibly led us to relate more easily to uh, the clicking of the keyboard and computer screens and remote controls than we do to flesh and blood. So loneliness, isolation are, are universal problems. Uh, even busy people, right? I mean, if I said, tell me someone in your life that you feel like is, is uh, lonely, the first person that comes to your mind may not be somebody that's, uh, that's busy, and yet, what Solomon tells us here, you, you can be busy, you can be caught up in all kinds of things and, uh, and still experience this as a reality of life. So it, even, even, even if people are busy, uh, without God, they will struggle with boredom and feelings of, of emptiness. Or uh, in the words of Thoreau, he said, these are people who, quote, lead lives of quiet desperation. So as we think about this, I mean, it, it, you know, we've, we've mentioned this before. Ecclesiastes is one of those books that we ourselves ought to identify with. <laughs> I mean, some of the struggles in our own lives, we certainly, if, if we can remember back, I mean, maybe these things aren't, you know, things that we deal with right now today. They might be. Uh, there's certainly things that as we look back on our lives before we came to know Christ, I mean, we remember what that was like. And these ought to be things that, that, that cause us to connect with people that we know that don't know Christ. So... As we go through these chapters, I just encourage you again and again in your evangelism, these are, these are touch points. I mean, these are things that you can so easily get into a conversation about people's lives and the vanity of life and life, what life is like without God 
by drilling into these kinds of, of topics, this, this being one of them, this issue of, of isolation, emptiness, uh, loneliness. Uh, last week I mentioned, I thought this was a great quote. Uh, I'll read it again. Thomas Wolfe said this, The whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that loneliness, far from being a rare and curious phenomenon, peculiar to myself and a few other solitary men, is the central and inevitable fact of human existence. And we said this, leaders aren't exempt, right? I mean, Solomon himself. This wasn't just something that Solomon observed, but I think it was something that Solomon experienced as a king. Um, He was certainly king of the land. He had all the money. He had the brains. He had the resources and the time to experience all that life could offer. And yet Solomon is the personification of boredom and loneliness. Uh, We talked about the Apostle Paul, his description of the human condition in Ephesians 2.12, that the Gentiles were having no hope and without God in the world. So this this describes our world. Uh, The sense of despair that people feel, the restlessness, the disengagement from friends and from neighbors and from family, the uh, the sense of discontinuity. This is the human condition. This is what uh, Solomon refers to as life under the sun. Uh, This is what Solomon saw as as he looked at life we might say, on simply a horizontal level uh, and not, not a vertical one, not, not taking God into consideration in some of these things. You're saying if you just look out at life and you don't understand that there's a God that created all things and that this God controls all things, if you don't realize that, that this is the kind of existence you're, you're talking about. This is, this is our existence under the sun and not above it. So in these verses, Solomon describes this, this loneliness that men and women experience. He really does this by looking at it from four different angles. So he he paints for us, we might say, four uh, portraits of uh, all of these lonely people who go about their days having no hope uh, and without God. We looked at uh, the first one and got close to finishing up the second one. The first one was simply this. Solomon describes life under the sun with no comfort. Uh, Life under the sun with no comfort, or we might, might even say with no comforter. Uh, he talks about this issue in the first three verses. Um, he's already introduced this general topic of injustice in chapter 3, but he really narrows that down to this specific form of injustice here in these first few verses of chapter 4, namely oppression, this, the idea of extortion or taking advantage of, of other people, uh, particularly people that uh, are poor and Vulnerable, He says there in verse 1, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So basically, Solomon, this is what Solomon is, is witnessing. He's saying on the side of the oppressed, there were many tears, but no comfort. And on the side of the oppressors was power, and power... Uh, most likely without accountability and power, without righteousness, which we said always leads to to suffering, and we could give, and we did talk about some examples of that even in our in our own day. What was Solomon's uh, uh, response or reaction to that? Well, verse two, a little bit of an, maybe an overstatement for for effect, but he says, "So I congratulated verse two the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living." 
Uh, the word is praise. So he, Solomon congratulates or he, he praises the dead for being better off than the oppressed who cannot enjoy their life under the sun. Uh, then he says this, you're better to have never been born, verse 3, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So Solomon basically says, listen, earthly life can be so discouraging, so disheartening at times as to make even non-existence preferable than the feeling of helplessness and hopelessness that those who are being oppressed experience, uh, those who have no one to comfort them, which we said sounds a little cynical. Um, And yet one commentator, I think, helps us here by saying this. He says, quote, So long as the central point of man's existence lies in the present life, and this is not viewed as the forecourt of eternity. So we, in other words, a person not thinking about eternity beyond this life, but they're only thinking about life in the here and now, that if that's where people live and think, and that's, that's their perspective, he says, there is no enduring consolation to lift us above the miseries of this present world. This is life under the sun, a life with no comfort and, and a life with no comforter. Then beginning in verse 4, we got into this, Solomon describes life under the sun with no contentment. No contentment. Uh, It's as if Solomon shifts his attention away, we might say from the halls of justice, from the the halls of the courts, uh, to the marketplace to to watch various people at work, and yet Solomon is equally sort of disappointed, I guess, by what he he sees there. He, you know, Solomon, you know this from Proverbs that Solomon valued hard work. Uh, he, he extolled the virtue uh, of, of hard work in the book of Proverbs. And so Solomon goes out. It's as if he's observing the world. He finds a hardworking man. Uh, he finds a man. He finds a busy man, a man that is very skillful in what he does, a man who is competent in, in what he does on the job, mastering uh, the skills of, of his trade, he's, he's very diligent with his hands. There's only one problem, and it's, it's the motivation of his heart because Solomon basically poses this question of, you know, this hardworking man, why does this person, this hardworking individual that he observes, why is he working so hard? Uh, why is he perfecting his skills? Why is he working so hard to perform? And the answer we get is simply that he's doing this to compete with others, uh, to make more money. He, he wants to make more than, than what his neighbors have. Verse 4, I've seen that, that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor, competition. Uh, this too, he says, is vanity and striving after wind. So he says rather than, than contentment, this man that he's observing, there's rather than contentment, there's, there's, there's strife, there's there's competition, there's, there's envy, uh, there's a coveting of what other people have. And so these things often go together. Solomon says envy and competition and covetousness often <laughs> go together in life. This sort of keeping up with the Joneses uh, attitude and perspective. But he says, listen, envy is always an insufficient motivation uh, in, in life and it will certainly not bring lasting satisfaction. In fact, he would say that success and riches can be downright dangerous and hazardous, right? Um, we face huge temptations in, this, in, our, in, our, in our culture. First uh, Timothy, Paul wrote this to, to his son in the faith. He says, 
in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So it says, I mean, you hear some of this language. I mean, Solomon's used this language about enjoying, right, enjoying life. I mean, work is, is a gift from God. It has its place. Um, and yet we have to be careful that we don't put our, our hope in these things, that we're not looking to these things to find some sort of satisfaction that only God himself can give. So in Paul's words, he's saying, listen, look, look to God, right? I mean, be satisfied in God. Fix your, fix your hope on God, not on something that's uncertain like riches, Then he says this, verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Or you could translate that, a life that is truly life. That's true life. Uh, Working, being diligent, but sharing and doing good and putting your hope in in God. Um, So, I mean, Solomon would have agreed with that. I mean, he would have wholeheartedly, you know, uh, agreed and amen what, what Paul writes here to, to Timothy based on what Solomon was experiencing and what he had been, been witnessing in his lifetime. Uh, you know how uh, cigarette ads, they ha- they, now they're required, they put the, on, on their, all their labels, they have to uh, put that warning that smoking, smoking is hazardous to a person's health in his, uh, in his book. Uh, uh, living on the ragged edge, Charles Swindoll says that he, he wishes a similar warning could appear at the bottom of every diploma of every person who graduates with a degree in business or finance. And at the bottom of that diploma, he said, I wish we could put that on the bottom, quote, warning, the God of heaven has determined that success can be lethal. <laughs> that we ought to require these, these, these warnings of people that as you pursue these things and you go out there and you start working and you start making money, just be careful because success can lead to death. Success can lead to loneliness. It can lead to all these things that Solomon has been, been mentioning, uh, this lack of, of lasting enjoyment, satisfaction, and contentment. So work is a gift from God. But like all of God's blessings, work can be distorted by sin. Uh, work can be a pleasure, but not if we pursue it for, for our own selfish purposes. And we can easily idolize our work. We can easily idolize our work. Uh, in an effort to have the things that money can buy, someone said we can sacrifice the things that money cannot buy. So what do we do? 
Well, we definitely don't want to go from that extreme over to the other side, right? We don't want to swing from this extreme of idolizing our work to this other extreme, which a lot of people do. They get frustrated with all that competition and all that covetousness and all that envy, and they just decide, well, then I'm not going to work. You know, I'm not going to be like those people over there that are stepping on others and are trying to attain and get these things. So they shift from idolatry to idleness, okay, which is just as hurtful, right, uh, just, uh, just as dangerous, we might say. So on the one side, we have envy, but on the opposite extreme, we have poverty that comes from laziness. So on the one side, we have too much, we might say too much ambition and too little rest, a person that is greedy and grasping and materialistic, but on the other, we have too little ambition and too much rest, a person that is lazy and slothful and apathetic. So Solomon goes from observing an, an industrious man to an idle man, which, which, as we said, must have been painful for him to, to witness because Solomon, again, based on Proverbs, seemed to have very little sympathy for lazy people. And so as he observes this lazy man, he doesn't really learn anything that he didn't already know, that, that laziness is a slow, comfortable path toward self-destruction. So he says here, in verse 5, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. So this, this folding of the hands, uh, which, which depicts the, the sort of the slumber of the lazy person, we see this in, in Proverbs 6 and in Proverbs 24, the same sort of description uh, of the, the slothful person. Uh, he says here that this fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh, which is an interesting um, uh, description. Uh, most agree that what he's doing here is he's 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 painting this picture of self uh, self cannibalism, <laughs> that that in this man folding his hands and 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 falling into this pattern of laziness that 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 he's destroying himself, that he's he's eating himself, he's consuming himself, uh, and not only not only living on what he takes from others. But literally his own person, he's destroying his own person. And in the end, that only leads to a sort of a, a self-tormenting or, or this, 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 again, lack of satisfaction. And Solomon says that this is equally useless. It's equally useless, useless to be this guy than it is to be this guy over here that's working hard but is consumed with, with material things and materialism. So this individual is, is not only consuming all that he has, but what he, what he is. Proverbs 6, 9 says this, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber. Here it is, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty, this is the result, your poverty, verse 11, will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. It will come. Your destruction will come, sudden and swift. So this man sits idle. His self-control wastes away. His capacity to care for others certainly uh, dissipates because people that are lazy tend to think about themselves. They tend to be unconcerned about others. They, this man loses all self-respect. And so 
we have this industrious man. Again, this contrast, we have this industrious man motivated by competition, caught up in the rat race of life, but had no leisure time. And then we have this idle man who was motivated by pleasure, but is equally headed for ruin. He has no productive time. And again, we see this in our, in our culture every day. And both of these men face anxiety. Both of them face anxiety. Because on the one hand, you have that anxiousness of the grasp, the, the, the greedy grasp. And then you have the, the anxiousness of the where is it coming from mentality. So you have the guy that has all these things, but he can't get enough. And then you have the guy that doesn't have what he needs because he's not working. And he's anxious about getting what he needs, right? So what's the solution? Well, Solomon doesn't explicitly lay this out. I'll just, this is just, I just throw this in there. Uh, for starters, I mean, this, we're thinking about what's the balance between these two things. We, we need to remember that we have one primary assignment and everything else is subordinate to that assignment. And that is to please and glorify God. Right? I mean, that, that is, as we think about all the responsibilities that we have and we, we have work and we have all these needs, we just always have to keep in mind that to please and glorify God is that central thing that we have to be um, motivated by, that we have to keep in focus. Right? We, we use this, this verse, this passage a lot around our church, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Therefore, we also have, Paul says, as our ambition, some translations are our aim or our goal, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So that's the thing we have to keep in front of us all the time is, is the goal that, that primary assignment of, of pleasing and glorifying God. And, and with that, a part of that, and Paul even brings this up, is this reality that one day we're going to give an account. Well, again, that sounds a lot like Solomon because Solomon's saying, listen, enjoy life, work hard, be responsible, and don't forget that in all your enjoyment, it's okay to have fun, it's okay to enjoy God's good gifts, but just remember that one day you're going to stand before the Lord. And so there always has to be a fear of the Lord that undergirds all of our enjoyment because we will give an account. So if you're a Christian, God, God loves you. God, God has chosen you. He's called you. He's saved you. He's, he's given you to Christ. And because of all of this, your primary assignment is to live for him and to obey him. And that, that should be before every other assignment. It supersedes every other assignment. It will last longer than every other assignment that you have. And remembering that will help you to organize, in a sense, and prioritize all of those other responsibilities that keep, we might say, bump, they keep bumping into one another, right? Because things just keep coming at us. And so we start our week and we have a plan, right? I mean, I have a day timer. I put things in there. But I mean, at the end of the week, it's funny how many times I've moved things around and crossed things out and that appointment never even happened. And I've got to move that one to next week. So we lay these things out, but all of a sudden these things start coming at us, and we struggle, honestly, as Christians sometimes, juggling all the various responsibilities that we have. But I think just remembering that that ultimate assignment is to please God, it will help us to sort of organize those things as they come. We also need to be striving for a level of faithfulness in all areas. And we've said this time and time again, we're not striving for perfection. We're striving for faithfulness. In all areas, so not just that, not the one area that we really like or that's, that comes easy, but in all areas of life, all those God-given responsibilities. And 
I think another helpful principle here is we need to remember that another one of those sort of objectives is love. We're commanded to love God and we're commanded to love our neighbor. Love for God, love for others. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction, the goal of, of what we have taught you, this is what we're hoping comes from the teaching, the truth that we've instilled in you. The goal of our instruction is love. We want you to love God. We want you to love your neighbor. But where does that come from? It comes from, he says, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So the goal of our instruction is that you would love God and you would love your neighbor and that love that God demands and requires is going to arise out of a person's life when they have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, which simply means that they have a pure heart. They have, we might call it, an inner life without hypocrisy. So they're submitting their will to every truth learned. So every time the truth comes to them, they consciously submit their life to the truth. So you're going to hear some things this hour. You're going to hear some things from Pastor Shane in the sermon today. And the thing is, don't just walk away going, man, that was a great sermon. That was a good Bible study. You're looking for truth, right? And as the truth comes, you're looking at the truth, you're looking at your life, and you're looking for inconsistencies in your life. And when there's inconsistencies between your life and the truth, you submit your will and life to the truth learned. Okay, that's one way. That isn't, Paul's basically saying, if that doesn't happen, you won't go out this week and love people. <laughs> the only way you'll possibly love the Lord and love people is if you are consciously submitting your life to the truth as it comes to you. Because that, it comes to us in, in pieces, right, in bite-sized pieces. We don't get it all at once. We don't get the computer chip download of all the truth when we get saved. We learn it, right, through teaching, through admonition, through ministry of others into our lives, through pastors, teachers. So we, we, we need a pure heart. We need a good conscience, which is just freedom from unconfessed sin. <laughs> so as the truth comes, what happens when that, hap- when, when that occurs in our lives? Conviction comes <laughs> because we do see the hypocrisy and we do see the, the neglect in our lives of, of certain responsibilities. And when we experience that conviction, where do we go with that? Well, we don't bury it. <laughs> We don't say guilt's a bad thing. No, we say, listen, I, if God exposed this in my life, it's, it, it needs to change. What do we do? We confess to the Lord and we repent. And as long as we're confessing and we're repenting, as the light of God's word shines into our hearts and life, then we'll be able to go out and successfully love others. But if we're not doing that, we won't. We won't do that. And honestly, what will happen is you'll go out into this week and things will come to you and you'll, you'll just become so bogged down and confused about what to do next because you're not making that application to your own heart and life. But when you're doing that, what I've experienced is that when you're actively doing that, that clarity comes in those moments and you learn how to balance those different responsibilities. And then he says this, sincere faith, right? The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, which is just a conviction that entrusts everything to God. If you are not trusting God with every detail of your life, then you won't be capable of loving him and loving others. So we need to be, be constantly entrusting these things to our Lord, knowing that God will provide for us, that he cares for us, that he's good. Only then can we love our neighbor. Okay. Now, back to the text, verse 6. He says this to, to help us here. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Okay, so he, he uses two terms here. The word for hand 
is, is a word that speaks of the palm or the flat hand. So it's, it's, it's more like this, as you hold your hand out like this. The fist, the term he uses here for fist, is the hollow of the hand, and it speaks of a cupping of your hand. So it's more like this. Okay, so he's saying one handful, just without cupping it, just, just if you flattened your hand out, if that's all of the rest you had, that would be better than cupping your hands and having two fists full of what? Full of labor and striving after wind, right? Because when we're doing this, we're, we're wanting as much as possible, right? We're cupping our hands to get as much as we possibly can get in there. And what Solomon is saying is this. He's saying that it's better to have modest earnings and a restful mind than to have large gains with the anxiety that typically accompanies those gains. Or we might say this, it's better to have a peaceful heart than to have huge gains but an anxious soul. So again, this is about motivation. It's about, it's about contentment. So many people, after clawing and scratching and climbing and building, only end up in a place in their lives that is marked by a dissatisfied restlessness. And Solomon reminds us here, it's better to have one hand full of rest, and we say one hand full of labor. Right, I mean, it's to be working, laboring, but also to be resting. So it's this, it's as if instead of, right, this cruel competitiveness or on the other side, this neglectful idleness, Solomon is recommending a, a, a balanced life, a, a life of, of moderation. Uh, uh, he's extolling the man whose, whose life is balanced, a man who is productive in his work, but also takes time for quietness, rest and pleasure, a man who doesn't run in the rat race, but who also doesn't run from his God-given responsibilities in life. Proverbs 15, 16 says this, better, and this is interesting because Solomon actually uses this formula a lot in Ecclesiastes, that it's better to have this than that. And he, and he does the same over in, in Proverbs. He uses that formula a lot. Proverbs 15, 16 says this, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. <laughs> I, mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's just practical stuff, right? I mean, in other words, Solomon is saying, it's better, it's better to have a little bowl of vegetable soup served at a table where there is lots of love than a big, thick, juicy steak shoved in front of you by someone who can't stand having you around, <laughs> right? Better to have a little bowl of soup with the people around you that love you and will comfort you and care for you than to have some huge meal shoved at you by someone that could care less. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. So no amount of money is worth the consequence of inju- consequences of injustice. No income is, is sufficient to wash away a guilty conscience. So, so Psalm is saying, why, why have both hands full of profit if that profit costs you your peace of mind and possibly your health? One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be a bad verse. For some of you guys and maybe ladies traveling into work, that wouldn't be a bad verse to put on an index card and put on your dashboard <laughs> so that every morning, right, when you're on your way to work, you can look at that. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor in striving after wind. One handful of contentment and responsible living is better than two fists of 
clawing and scraping, striving, pushing and pulling your way to the top. So this is the picture that Solomon paints. The, the industrious man thinks that money will bring him peace, but he has no time to enjoy it. The idle man thinks that doing nothing will bring him peace, but his lifestyle only destroys him. We must learn to labor and also enjoy the fruit of our labor. We must learn to balance toil and rest. And that's only possible when we understand that God is the one that has given us homes, He's given us jobs, He's given us sustenance and relationships, but that these things were never meant to satisfy us, right? They were never meant to take the place of God Himself. It's only possible when we have a realistic and a a biblical world view, a biblical view of life, when we understand that, that this is not the Garden of Eden that we live in and this is not heaven and why that's the case. And it's only possible when we believe that God does indeed have a wonderful plan for our lives and that His perfect plan includes everything that we need, the painful as well as the pleasant. And if we don't, then we'll surely experience what Solomon describes here, a lonely existence, a life with no rest, a life with no contentment. So we have life under the sun with no comfort. We have life under the sun with no contentment. Thirdly, we have life under the sun with no companionship. Verse 7, Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man, verse 8, without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity, and it's a grievous task. So here's one of those places. It's a certain man without a dependent. It's literally, you could translate it, there was one and not a second. So again, it's this contrast between isolation and loneliness versus having someone else there to help. Craig Bartholomew in his commentary says this, There are various reasons a person like this ends up alone. We can speculate as to why, and his work, workaholism may provide a clue. It is more likely that for circumstantial reasons this person has found himself alone, and in this, this rough situation he has sought meaning in work or wealth, but they fail to provide the meaning that he seeks. So it, it, this, is a, this is about a, a self, we might call a self-made hermit, uh, and self-made her- hermits tend to be selfish. They, they tend to focus on the riches that they, uh, they hope their labor will bring them. Uh, you also, and again, this, you, know, you think about men. I think a lot about men with families. Um, there have certainly been many men uh, that have been preoccupied with being successful uh, in the business world, all the while telling themselves that, that, that uh, they're doing, doing these things in order to take care of their families. But the reality is they're just caught up in their own projects. They're just caught up in, in making a name for themselves and, and their families soon become casualties due to their neglect for uh, their real welfare. So you have these men's, men, men doing this, I think. And, and what's interesting, it's an interesting dynamic because uh, we, we, we talk to a lot of men sometimes that they, they, they dive in and they pour themselves into their work and, and, and their mentality is that they're doing this because in some cases their wives, they feel like there's this pressure from their wives or their family to have certain things and to live at this certain lifestyle. What's interesting is that when they dive in and they actually do what's necessary to get the things that their families or that their spouses say that they want, in the end, 
their spouses are even more embittered <laughs> against them. It's like it didn't work. They gave their spouses the things that they thought their spouses really wanted, but when they throw the material things at their spouses, guess what? Their spouse, that's not really what satisfies. That's not really what those, those wives want in, in the end. And so now they've, they've lost that, right? They've lost those relationships, and then, of course, they've lost all the time and all the energy that they've expended on pursuing their, their careers. So one thing is certain, this person that Solomon's talking about here is more focused on material things than on relationships. Uh, he doesn't want others to help him. He doesn't really want to share the profits of his work. He, he has no time to really enjoy his profits. Uh, he seeks independence. And in contrast to this loner, Solomon says, two are better than one. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. So there's value. Solomon just comes around here and says, listen, there's value in friendship. There's value in doing things together. Uh, that is certainly true when it comes to working. Uh, even if two divide, these two working together divide their profits, two workers can get more done and, and there's a greater return for their efforts. It's also easier to do difficult projects with someone else, right? I mean, to do difficult jobs together, there's a greater physical ability there, strength. Uh, one can be an encouragement to the other in those difficult things. And then Solomon gives really three examples of solitary existence, sort of in contrast to companionship, in order to make his point. Verse 10, For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. So uh, this is sort of an example of a, of a person traveling in the ancient Near East, perhaps in, in Palestine, that has fallen into a pit or a ravine. Of course, ro- roads and paths in, in Palestine were not paved. They weren't, they weren't all that level. Uh, there were lots of hidden rocks in the fields, much opportunity for, for stumbling. Then he says in verse 11, Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? So here he gives an example of a person attempting to keep warm outdoors during a cold night, uh, perhaps camping out in the countryside or maybe staying in the courtyard of a public inn. Uh, the, the only way, he says, to stay warm alone would be to carry extra blankets, which would just add to the load. Verse 12, and if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. So here's this, an example of a person that encounters a robber or some other threatening individual along the road in his journey. Uh, again, certainly a great danger in traveling alone in those days, uh, which is why most people traveled in groups, most people uh, for fellowship and for, for safety. And so Solomon reiterates here, one cord could be easily broken, two cords would be stronger, and if two are better than one, then three would be even better, right? He ends there, he says, a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So an individual who isolates himself from companionship fails to experience community and its God-ordained blessings. I mean, this is what the Lord said, Genesis chapter 2, right? It's not good that man uh, be alone. So God has always advocated companionship over solitary lives. He's always done that. God has always advocated companionship over solitary lives. This is about the blessings of companionship and the pitfalls of not having good friends. 
people to care for you, people for you, not just to care for you, but people for you to serve and people for you to minister to. The old, uh, this is an old Sw- Swedish motto that used to hang in kitchens. It says a little sign, a little sign in the kitchen would say, shared joy is a double joy. Shared sorrow is a half sorrow. <laughs> shared joy is a double joy. Shared sorrow is a half, half of a sorrow. So we need, we need people at our side. We need their input. We need them to help us to gain objectivity. We need to, them to help us to have courage in threatening situations, sometimes to temper our dogmatism. Sometimes we see things and it's like, this is the way it is, and we need people to temper that sometimes and to say, hey, have you thought about this other thing? We need that. But the reality is, in spite of the endless exchange, exchanges that we have with coworkers, neighbors, family members, and teammates, most people's lives are void of true companionship. That's the reality. As you, it could be true in your life, certainly true in, in the lives of those that live around us and work around us every day. Most people's lives are void of companionship. So there's definite advantages to companionship. And yet, and this is the thing we always have to keep in mind, <laughs> when Solomon says things like, it's better for you to have this, he never intends for us to say, so that's the answer. If I just had a human companion, then I would be satisfied, right? So it's this, he's, he's saying there's advantages to companionship, and yet even human companionship does not satisfy the sense of eternity that God has put in the hearts of men. In fact, many couples sit in loneliness staring at the television for hours at a time. Many couples seek some diversion to fill the emptiness and the misery of their lives. So companionship is better. This is what Solomon say. Companionship is better than loneliness, but it's not the answer. It's better than loneliness, but it's not the ultimate answer. So we have life under the sun with no comfort, life under the sun with no contentment, life under the sun with no companion, and then finally, life under the sun with no continuity. This is interesting. This last little section here is about it's about the fickleness of popularity. It's about the, the instability of political power. The fact that fame is fleeting, right? Verse 13, a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. So here we have a king that proves to be foolish because he no longer knows how to receive instruction or admonition or warnings. Maybe at one point earlier on in his, in his reign, he, he probably heeded the advice of his counselors and he ruled wisely. Um, but it's very possible that as time passed, that he more and more, and this you see this, people do this in leadership, that more and more this king may have surrounded himself by those who simply flattered him, that weren't willing to tell him what he needed to hear to be a wise king anymore. Uh, Maybe they took from him, they became leeches, they became people that took from him all that they could get, and this, this isolated him from reality. And so this king is no longer acting uh, as, as a person who's wise and listening to good, to good counsel. He's now acting as a loner, refusing to listen to those who, who have his and the people's best interest in mind. He's choosing to act on his own, being more concerned about himself than, than the people. And so we have this king, and then we have a younger, the term lad, 
And the term lad, is, it doesn't mean a young boy. It just, it's a relative term. So it just means someone younger than the king. So it could be, there's a, that use in the Old Testament, the term lad is actually used in some places to describe people that we know were in their 30s and 40s. So it's just saying that compared to this older king, we have this younger man who is wiser but who is in prison. Maybe for trying to help the king. So maybe he was younger and trying to help the king. And he said, uh-uh, we're not going to have any of that. You're, you're going away. Maybe it's like Joseph, right, who's in prison for someone's false testimony. Whatever the reason, this younger lad gets out of prison. And guess what he does? He becomes the next king. Verse 14, for he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. And guess what happens? Everybody cheers the underdog, right? Everybody cheers and rejoices that the nation now has wise leadership at last. It's like, oh man, that old king, he wouldn't listen. This young king, this young lad comes out of prison. He arises because of his wisdom and the people are relieved and they just, they, they praise this guy. But, verse 15, I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad. Now this is not... That same boy, this is actually another individual. So there's three individuals in this example. This second lad comes along, and guess what happens in time? He replaces the young lad who came to take power. So this could be, some of us thought, thought this could be the legitimate successor to the old king, the one that should have taken, uh, should have reigned following in the steps of the older king, but that younger lad stepped in, and because of the the popularity, he got to that level. But then there's this legitimate successor that comes, and he eventually rises and becomes a king and replaces that that other one. So there's really three different people here that we're talking about. So it looks like the young king has it made in one verse. And then what we realize is that that doesn't last. (laughs) It just doesn't last. The popularity doesn't last. The younger generation grows up around him, and then that same generation at some point rejects him. They depose their king and appoint somebody else. Derek Kidner said this, the new, the new king, quote, has reached a pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. <laughs> it is yet another of our human anti-climaxes and ultimately empty achievements. Verse 16, there is no end to all the people to all who were before before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after win. What, what's the point Solomon's making here? Uh, that, again, God, just horizontal, under the sun, if we're just looking at life under the sun, everyone turns out to be expendable. <laughs> there is no continuity. These things happen, and you're like, yes, and then somebody else comes along. Right, You have this situation, and you think it's going to stay that way, and then all of a sudden there's a, a whole different situation that comes, that arises. In fact, Oliver Cromwell, who took the British throne away from Charles I, he established the Commonwealth, said to a friend, quote, Do not trust to the cheering. <laughs> Do not trust to the cheering, for those persons would shout as much if you and I were going to be hanged. <laughs> So be careful. He's just saying, all those people that are applauding and cheering you today, be careful because those same people will be cheering just as loud (laughs) maybe one day when you're up for execution. Michael Kelly in his book, The Burden of God, says this, that 
quote, the masses willingly support revolution because they cannot believe that the fault lies in them. The masses always support revolution because they cannot imagine that the fault lies within them. Why do they revolt? Because it's not because of, they don't see themselves as the problem. They see the leader as the one that has the the problem. So Solomon would say this, it's lonely at the top. There is no lasting and meaningful significance. The world considers you disposable. You can be replaced. And just as a quick, quick, um, uh, just example of that, my son is Josiah in here. He's not in. Here. He he used to work. He, he worked back. At, he worked at Publix uh, down in down near where we lived, and and I, he worked there for what eight eight months, a year, maybe over a year. Okay, so so he started working with Matt at, at, at Voss Lighting, and so he slowly trailed off of the job at Publix, and then he wasn't really going into that store at all because it wasn't the one that was the closest to our to our house. But he went in there a week or so ago and thought, I'm just going to stop in there and I'm just going to see some old coworkers. And so he goes to one of the departments and he sees one of the older gentlemen. I think it was the guy that works in the meat department or whatever. And so he starts walking up to him and is going to start a conversation. And um, the guy says, hey, Jeremy, good to see you. <laughs> that, my son's name is Josiah. So he goes, hey, hey, Jeremy. And Josiah was like, you know, so he, did, he just went with it. Like, you know, I'm not going to tell the guy, sorry, but I'm not Jeremy. And so he just was like, hey, you know, uh, good to see you. And how are things going? So then he talk, had that conversation, kind of worked his way up towards the front of the store, saw, I think it was a kid that was either a cashier or, or a kid that used to, you know, bag groceries with him. And, and this kid looks at him and he says, hey, Jonathan, good to see you, man. How are you doing? So Josiah's like, okay, hey, hey, I'm doing great, you know, moving on and things are good. So then he finds his manager before he leaves, and his manager says, Joshua! <laughs> so, three times. <laughs> three wrong names. I just told him, I said, that is, that, is, that is the corporate. I mean, that's just, that's the downside to working in a large company. <laughs> but just to, just to say, I mean, you know, he went in there thinking, these people are missing me. They, 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 I mean, the company, the stocks have probably plummeted since I left here. And then, the, and then he's walking up, and three people that he recognized, and I think he remembered all their names, but because he wasn't around, you know, I mean, life moves on. And he left, and guess what? Somebody just filled his slot and took over his, his job. So, the wor- listen, the world is full of lonely people. No comfort, no contentment, no companionship, no continuity. Again, a connecting point for un- as we talk to unbelievers. I mean, this is the life that they're living, okay? They experience these things. And we can tell them, listen, there's hope in Christ, okay? You don't have to live life under the sun. You can, you can live life beyond that, right? There's hope, hope in the gospel. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He satisfies us in every way. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. He is the bread of life. Jesus said, Matthew 11, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother, and he's always with us. A little girl misquoted Psalm 23, verse 1. But not a bad, not bad to misquote it this way. She said this, The Lord is my shepherd and he's all that I want. <laughs> right? But that's, that's, that's what it means. That's, that's, that's the message, though, right, of Psalm 23. The, the Lord is our shepherd and he is all that we should want in our lives. All right, folks. So we'll, uh, we'll end there, stop there. And uh, next, next time together, we'll jump into Ecclesiastes Uh, Chapter 5. Thank you for your time.